Okay, so everybody's at Revelation chapter 4. Good to go. By way of introduction on your study sheet, there is much confusion, disagreement, and debate over the doctrine of the rapture these days. The three, there are three, the three common views of the rapture are post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and pre-tribulation. There's also a fourth and less commonly held view um, when it comes to all, really all end times prophecy, which is the allegorical view, which we're not even going to touch on at all because, seriously, basically you can just make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you're taking the allegorical approach. Then everything's figurative and everything's spiritual, so whatever you think it means, that's what it means. That's the allegorical view. So, those that hold to the post-tribulation rapture believe that the church will go through the tribulation and be taken off the earth right before the battle of Armageddon and immediately return with Christ for that battle. That would be a post-tribulation view. A belief in the mid-tribulation rapture is that believers will go through the first half of the tribulation, but will be raptured before the second half. This view is also referred to as pre-wrath, the pre-wrath rapture. Now, what we believe uh, is a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. The church will be removed from earth before, before the seven-year tribulation and will return with Christ at His second coming. So as we take a deeper look at what we believe, we must have a heart attitude that seeks to know what the Bible says and not to just know what our church says. And that goes with every doctrine. That goes with everything that's being taught at this church. Don't believe it just because you heard it at your church. Too many people are led astray because of those very things. Now, I understand that you trust the people in leadership. You trust our pastors, as do I. But we're all human. Everyone that's standing up teaching the Bible is human and capable of making a mistake. It doesn't mean it's malicious, but it can happen. So, we can't just believe these things because, well, that's what Tom believes, that's what Tim believes. You've got to believe it because the Bible says it. And that's where we've got to land. And I hope that, that as we go through this tonight, you'll see there are a lot of Bible verses here. There are a lot of things we're going to look at. And I feel that, that we definitely land on a pre-tribulation rapture. I mean, I remember this all started, my, kind of my quest onto this is when Claudia and I were visiting some friends uh, a girl that she grew up with, and her husband is now a, a pastor of a uh, Disciples of Christ or Church of Christ or Christian church, whatever it is. And, and we were up at their house when they first moved back. And um, Claudia was talking to her friend, and this was when we, we heard uh, her say, well, we don't take the Bible literally. Came out of the pastor's wife's mouth. And then also... Claudia had just, she talked about the rapture of the church and how it was before the tribulation because, Claudia, you were, I mean, you were newer to being saved. And she just thought that this was, this is the Bible. This is the teaching. Everyone believes this. And so her friend starts going, well, we don't believe that. Well, then her husband gets involved, who has just graduated divinity school. And so he starts grilling me about why we believe it. And I'm like, look, man, I don't even have a handle on it. And at that point, I didn't even know if I believed it. I wasn't going to come make waves in our church. But I didn't even know if I believed it biblically. So I'm like, okay, I don't know, okay? I'm not, I'm not diving into this tonight. So that kind of started me on my quest for it. And then I thought I had a decent handle on it. And then I was at work and I had a customer kind of challenge me on it too. 
And I realized I really don't know why I believe what I believe. So that really is what prompted me to make sure I dove in and I studied. And that's why you have four pages of notes tonight because <laughs> that's how I went about it. I wanted to know. I didn't want it to be because the church says it. I wanted it to be because I personalized it and I knew what the Bible said and I knew what was out there. So, you know, I went through and studied all the different views, not just what we believe, to come to the conclusions, because I wanted to know, how can these people even get this out of the Bible? And you can go to the Bible, and you can see how they could, they could get these things, but the key is, as always, understanding context, and understanding how things fit into the Bible, and understanding the purpose of the rapture, understanding the purpose of the tribulation period, which is what we're going to hit later in this study tonight. So, first off, the rapture of the church. It is the mystery of the rapture. The mystery of the rapture. And a biblical mystery, just like we may not use this word appropriately today, but what a true mystery would be is a truth that was once hidden, which has now been revealed. You've heard this from the pulpit. It's just like a mystery movie or a mystery novel. You're going through, you see that there's things happening, but you don't know why yet. You don't know who did it. Well, that's like a biblical mystery. The truth is always there, it just hasn't been revealed yet. Well, that's what, the, that's what the rapture is. So the next point, the rapture of the church was in mystery form until the truth was more clearly revealed. More clearly revealed. And we'll see here on your paper, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. This is a mystery. It was, now I'm going to reveal it to you. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. That's very important. At the last trump. For the, and that doesn't mean our president. He's not the last trump <laughs> per se. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Well, again, when I was studying these things, I thought to myself, you know, we have a, a class even that we do the seven New Testament mysteries, right? Like the mystery of godliness, the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of the church, the Christ dwelling inside you. There's all these mysteries, and they all have their roots in the Old Testament. You can go to the Old Testament and find verses on every single one of those mysteries, but I had never seen one in the Old Testament for the rapture, which troubled me because I thought, okay, well then, is this in the Old, if this isn't in the Old Testament, is this a mystery? Is this true? Is this really what it is? And it's one of those things when you really are seeking God and you're praying and you're like, Lord, I just, I don't know. I don't know. He shows you things. That's the next verse on your paper. Isaiah 26, 19 to 21. I'd never seen this before until really trying to study the rapture. And he says, thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy, what is it? Chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, 
the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. When you hear going into the chambers, what does that make you think of? Yeah, hiding. But what's going to take place when we're after we're raptured? What's what, what's going to take place? All right, it's a good thing we're doing end time studies. What's going to happen? What are we going to do? We're definitely going to get new bodies, but there's a, an event that's going to take place. That's at the very end. Judgment seat's going to happen. Right here, guys. See this thing? Yeah, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to get married to Christ. Go into the chambers. Maybe the wedding chambers is what we find here in Isaiah 26. Come in, enter into your chambers, shut the door. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. That will be the tribulation period. He's saying, come in to the wedding feast. Come into the wedding chamber. We're going to hide you until that indignation is overpassed. Because here's what's coming. The Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's what's coming. And when he does that, we're coming back with him. We're coming back with him. So it is, in fact, buried there in the Old Testament in mystery form. Because without the New Testament, that would not make sense. It wouldn't make sense. Just like all the other mysteries that you find in the Bible, all these New Testament mysteries that have been revealed, if all you had was the Old Testament, not a one of them would make sense. But when we have the New Testament and we compare these things out, we see that, in fact, God even hid the rapture there in the Old Testament, that we were going to be hidden till all that indignation was overpassed, and then we were going to come out with him as he goes out to conquer the planet. So another verse that, you know, all these verses really you could go to, but for the sake of time tonight, we're going to look at Revelation 4. Because we're doing end times, and this is what we're going to be going through, is Revelation. Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, John said, after this, after the church age has taken place, right? Revelation uh, 2 and 3, we went through that at the beginning of this study. That's the church age. So he says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a what? A trumpet. And what did it say in 1 Corinthians? At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Well, John's saying, I heard this voice as a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That would be the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll get into not this week. But he's saying, after the church age, right? So we've just come through the church. We just went through church history here in this class. And at the end of the church age, the next thing we read is John hears a voice as a trumpet saying, come up hither. A door opens in heaven. John goes up. Do you guys know the next time a door opens in heaven throughout this entire book? It's Revelation 19. Exactly. When Jesus and his saints come back down. It's the only two times a door is opened in heaven. And the first time, a saint is going up. So, 
This is the mystery of the rapture. Next is understanding the great tribulation. Go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20. We need to understand the tribulation. What is the purpose of it? Because that's going to help us understand where we fit in this whole thing. So what is the purpose of it? Ezekiel 20. Okay. 33 to 38. So understanding the purpose of the Great Tribulation, your point here is the, to purge Israel, to purge Israel from rebels and purify them to receive their Messiah. That is the purpose of the Tribulation. It centers around Israel. It does not center around Gentiles. It does not center around the church. It centers around purifying, to uh, purge Israel, and to purify the people to receive their Messiah. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people, Israel, He's going to call Israel out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And that's an everlasting covenant that you can read about in Hebrews and in Jeremiah. Verse 38, And I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. It's to, to purge out the rebels, and then to purify Israel. If you look up here on the screen, if you can read it, it's kind of small. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, it says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried, they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So when you read in the Bible, and all Israel shall be saved, that's what it means. One-third. One-third. Unless you think that the Bible contradicts itself, if you carefully read through the prophet books and the Old Testament, you'll find at times God refers to these people as Jacob, and there's times where you refer to them as Israel. Do you guys know the difference? Do you know why God would do that? Who was Jacob? Yeah, son of Isaac he was. He was a supplanter, a deceiver, a trickster. But after God broke him, what was his name? Israel. Oftentimes when God refers to Jacob, he's referring to this nation in their disobedience. And when he refers to Israel, he's referring to them in their obedience. So when it says all Israel shall be saved, it's true Israel, 
not Jacob, not those that are in unbelief and refuse to believe with hardened hearts, not those that want to follow the way of the Antichrist, not those that are staunchly atheistic and will not bow and will not bend to the ways of God. It's one-third. Israel. True Israel. So the purpose of the Great Tribulation, again, is to purge Israel from rebels and to purify them. They need to be purified. That's why he said in Ezekiel, I'll bring you under the rod. It's a rod of correction to purify them, to receive their Messiah. So here's the point. You know, all, every, every prophet book, with the exception of one, was written to whom? Israel. Israel. With the exception of Obadiah. They're all written to Israel or for Israel. So the tribulation, when we read these here in Ezekiel, when we see this in Zechariah, it's to Israel. It's to the Jews. And it's also referred to as the time of whose trouble? Jacob's, Jacob's trouble. Jacob's is your blank. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Again, not Israel's, because Israel is obedient. It's the time of Jacob's trouble to purify them. Not the time of the church's trouble. It's Jacob's trouble. Go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 9. So we have the time of Jacob's trouble. The book of Daniel. Who's this written to? It's not a trick. Who? To Israel. To the Jews. It's written to the Jews. And Daniel, he was of what religion? What faith? Jewish. Okay, good. I just want to clarify before we read this verse. Daniel 9, verse 24. This is the angel talking to Daniel. And he says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most Holy. So that here it says that 70 weeks are determined on whose people? Well, on Daniel's. He says on thy people. The angel is saying on thy people, Daniel. And Daniel's people are the Jews. It's Israel. These 70 weeks, they're determined upon Israel. Not the Gentiles. Israel are the 70 weeks determined upon. And the 70th week just happens to be the tribulation period. Verses 25 to 27 here. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore, to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. So he's saying, you know, from the, from the time that, that you're told to go back home and build until the Messiah, the Prince, or better known as Jesus to us, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. How many? Sixty-nine, seven, and three score and two. So that's seven plus sixty plus two. Sixty-nine weeks. That's sixty-nine weeks until Messiah. Lost my spot. There we go. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, and the seven mentioned in the previous verse, making it sixty-nine weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come, that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, 
and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. And that last verse that's known in the New Testament as what? What is that? It's the abomination of desolation. So we know that the direct context here is the tribulation period. That is the 70th week. And it says that 70 weeks were determined upon Daniel's people, Israel, not the church, because the tribulation is for the Jews. Next, part of the purpose of this, it's to cause Israel to call out to Christ. So up here on the screen, Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking to the nation of Israel, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is part of what the tribulation period is for because it's finally going to break that hard-heartedness of Israel to have them call out, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They're finally going to call out for that Messiah that they crucified. And then it will come back. This is part of what the tribulation is all about. It's about purifying the Jew. And then go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Because I think this is another verse that just makes it absolutely, positively clear that the tribulation period is for Israel. It's for Israel, not for the church. Romans 11, 25-27. He says, For I would not, brethren, believers, church, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Here's another one of those mysteries. Lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Unto them. Who? Israel. And notice that it says that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Right now there's a, a temporary blindness they have. For how long? Yes, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So your point here, the partial blindness on Israel will be lifted after the fullness of the Gentiles is come in. That's how it's worded. After the fullness of the Gentiles is come in. That's going to be coming into heaven, into His presence. After that has happened, then this partial blindness that they have, as Paul puts it here in 1st or 2nd Corinthians, he refers to it as a veil that they have over their hearts. Just like Moses in the wilderness, when he had been up on the mountain and he came down off and his face was glowing and it was freaking everybody out because he was shining the glory of God back, they made him put a veil over his face to hide it. Well, Paul says Israel has that same veil today, but now it's over their heart. 
which veil will be done away. It'll be ripped apart after the church is gone, when their heart is turned to God. But right now, there's a temporary blindness. There's a temporary veil over their heart so they don't believe. And we've heard it, I I believe we just heard it Sunday. This is what they asked for, right? In the Gospel of Matthew. His blood be on us and our children. And it has been. And to this day, there's a temporary partial blindness on Israel because it's what they asked for. They wanted His blood on their head and they got it. So this is part of the Great Tribulation. This is, this is what's going on. There's a partial blindness until then, and then they'll be in this tribulation and they're going to get it. They're finally going to get it that they crucified their Messiah. So your next point is the tribulation is not for the church. It's not for the church. It's for Israel. Go ahead and turn to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. You know what, we're just going to jump in at the, uh, we'll just start at verse 1 for some context. He says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. You know, there'd be willing, people would be willing to put their life down for for someone that's a good person, someone they really care about, they really love. Verse 8, But God, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from what? Wrath through Him. Through the blood of Christ, we are saved from wrath. We're saved from wrath. That's your blank. Through the blood of Christ, we are saved from wrath. Go ahead and uh, turn over to 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead... Even Jesus, which delivered us from the what? The wrath to come. The wrath to come. Your next point. We are delivered, that should say from, not form. We are delivered from the wrath to come. We've we've been delivered from it. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. It says, For God hath not appointed us to what? Wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not appointed to wrath, but salvation. We've been appointed to salvation, not God's wrath. And then up here on the screen, 
Revelation 16, verse 1, which is definitely going on during the tribulation period. He says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. This tribulation period, this great tribulation, is God's wrath being poured out on the earth. Yet we just looked at three clear verses where we're not appointed unto wrath. He has saved us from God's wrath, and we don't have to go through it. So on your paper, the tribulation is God's wrath poured out on the earth. We're not appointed to go through God's wrath. We've been saved from it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your next point. After Jesus describes the events leading to his return, he says that we may be accounted worthy to escape. Escape all these things that shall come to pass. Again, up here on the screen, Luke 21, 36. He says, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And this is the chapter that I, we talked about early on that lines up with Matthew 24 with all those signs of the times and what would be coming. And in Luke, when he works through it, he says, You need to watch and pray that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things I just told you about. So those that are believers today can escape it. Next, those involved in false religion. False is your blank. Those involved in false religion will be cast into the great tribulation, but those that repent will not see it. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 2. It was hard for me to not hit this when we were going through Revelation 2. But here we're in Thyatira. Again, we're in the, we're in like the, is that the midnight? No, not quite the midnight of the Dark Ages. It's on its way there. We're well into the Dark Ages though here in Thyatira. And then in verse 22, so we know it's talking about this false religion, this false system that people are following, right? That woman Jezebel, and we talked about how Jezebel, just like Balaam, was marrying God's people to the world and getting them to follow a false way. And then in verse 22, it's interesting, he says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, Jezebel, the false religion, the false way. I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. It's interesting, because it doesn't say tribulation, does it? It says great tribulation. And that's what we're referring to when we talk about what's going on on the planet is the great tribulation. Because we also read verses in Romans 5 where it says, Tribulation worketh patience. But that's a different context. That's a different understanding. He's talking about the here and now. The tribulations that we go through in this life, they work patience in us. This, on the other hand, he says, great tribulation. Those that are following that false way, I'm going to cast them into the great tribulation. They're going to go through it because they're not mine. They're not my children. So those will be going through it. And then next, the last point here under this part, the church is only mentioned in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, and then we do not see or hear a mention of the church or saints uh, that were church-age saints at all, again, until Revelation chapter 19, and that's when that door opens up and Christ returns with his saints. 
The church is not mentioned at all. The only time you even see saints show up in that section in between is talking about those that were martyred during the Great Tribulation time. That's it. But the church age saints are not mentioned again until Jesus returns. So that's kind of the, the events that unfold there in the book of Revelation. And this is important. And we hammered this as we were working through church history. But you know what I thought? I'm keeping it in here. Because this is so key and so critical. We must guard ourselves against replacement or covenant theology. Replacement theology is the teaching that the Christian church has replaced the nation of Israel regarding the plan, purpose, and promises of God. And that is not true. It's heresy and it's false. And when you don't understand this, it's hard to place where this rapture takes place. It's hard to understand. Because if you believe the church has replaced Israel with everything God planned and promised for Israel, well, now all of a sudden we have to go through it because it's for Israel and it's to purify them. So if you don't know where to place Israel and you think that we've now taken their place, you're confused when it comes to these issues. But that's not the case. And it's very easy to prove, even with news stories and articles today, if you just look around, nobody can come against Israel. Nobody can stand against them. No matter what anyone tries or has tried throughout all of history, they are still a nation, they're still standing today, and they're still strong. No matter what. God is not done with the Jew. God is not done with them. When he, when he says, I will do this, he means I will do it. He doesn't mean, well, you messed up too bad, so now I'm going to take these other people and put them in your place. No. When he said, I will restore Israel, he means I will restore Israel. That's it. So next, understanding the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Because there's two different times. We're not going to look at all these verses. You have them on your paper. You can do this on your own time. The difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. With the rapture, we meet Jesus in the air. With the second coming, Jesus' feet touch the earth. With the rapture, the church is called up, and with the second coming, the saints accompany him down. With the rapture, the trump of God is heard, and with the second coming, there's an angel sounding a trumpet. Not a voice as a trumpet, but an angel sounding a trumpet. With the rapture, no signs precede it. No man can know the day or hour. There are no signs that precede the rapture. No like, okay, well... This happened and this happened. The rapture's in seven days now. He says no man can know. However, many signs precede the second coming of Christ. You have the whole book of Revelation. You could read through this and understand where you're at in the tribulation and how close it is to Jesus actually touching earth again. So what, how could Jesus say things like no man can know the day or hour if he's talking about the same things? Because his second coming, you could have it pinned down pretty stinking close based on everything that's taking place through the book of Revelation. The rapture deals only with the saved. The second coming deals with the lost and the saved. The rapture is referred to as the blessed hope, but the second coming is referred to as a day to be feared. A day to be feared. So this is an argument you may hear, since we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Is the doctrine of the rapture too new to be true? Too new to be true. I don't know if you've heard this, but we're going to work through it. Opponents of the pre-tribulation rapture claim that Margaret MacDonald, 
a 15-year-old uh, Scottish girl invented the doctrine around 1830. The belief is that she had a vision at a prophecy conference in Dublin of Christ returning to gather his church before the coming tribulation. A man named John Nelson Darby was also at this conference and publicized this new doctrine. That's what people who, who stand against the pre-tribulation rapture, this is a huge argument that they will have, that there was no teaching, no writings, no evidence at all of a pre-tribulation rapture before 1830. However, that's false. That is absolutely false. This view ignores many, many as your blank, many writings that precede 1830. So these writings that preceded 1830, they wrote of the imminent return of Christ which is the central argument for the pre-tribulation rapture, the imminent return. Basically, imminent return just means that it could happen at any moment and without warning. That's all imminent return means. This is in opposition to the literal, physical return of Christ, which will be preceded by many signs and warnings. Many. So, this is just a list of some people that, that wrote of this. Again, they didn't call it the rapture. So if you're going to try looking into books into antiquity about the rapture, you're not going to find them. But they made a distinction between this imminent return of Christ and then this time when he actually touches down on earth again. They saw these as two separate things, but they didn't have the doctrine the way we would understand it today. So some of the people that wrote about it are Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Cyprian, Lactantius, and then we have a guy, Augustine, who everyone likes to praise as the, the greatest theologian who ever lived, when in fact, he was a heretic. So Augustine, who was alive from 354 to 430 AD, he began spiritualizing the Bible as allegory. as It's just spiritual, it's uh, figurative, you can basically make it say whatever you want and believe it and propagate it. So what he began doing, he began teaching amillennialism. Amillennialism, which means that there's no literal millennium. That, that's, that what we read in the Bible, that's actually just figurative. When it says that Satan will be bound for a thousand years and then be loosed, that's just figurative. That's, that doesn't mean what it says. He began teaching this. And the Catholic Church, who he was with, then dominated the planet for over a thousand years. And he taught that there was no such thing because he didn't even believe in a literal millennium. So he was not teaching an imminent return and a second coming because he didn't even believe in a millennium. So through this period of domination and persecution, there were still believers that separated uh, to separated the, probably the, rapture from the second coming. And these are just a few. You have Ephraim of that place, Abbot Seelfrid, Brother Dalcino, and just a note that you see all these have kind of worked through history from the, some in the 300s there, 6 to 700s, 12 to 1300s. But a note, this short list does not mean that these were the only people to believe this. These are the writings that exist today, that are still on the planet today. Many people deemed heretics by the Catholic Church were killed and their possessions destroyed. There could have been many more, but all the writings were burned up and destroyed. Because if you didn't line up with what the church said, you were a heretic and you were killed and yeah, everything was destroyed that you had.
So we don't know, but I can tell you that from this time period, which flows right through the Dark Ages, there's not a whole lot of writings that exist today. Next, others from the Reformation then forward. You have Joseph Mead, uh, Increase Mather, Peter Giroux, Philip Doddridge, John Gill, James McKnight, Thomas Scott, Morgan Edwards, William Witherby, and then finally John Nelson Darby. But all these people that had writings long before John Nelson Darby was even born separated these things out. They didn't understand it fully. They didn't really know what they were looking at, but they knew there's two very distinct differences here. They just didn't quite have a handle on it. So, the doctrine of the rapture was not invented in 1830. It was not invented in 1830. It was more clearly understood from that time forward. And if you're getting freaked out about that, it's okay. This should not cause anxiety and apprehension about what we believe. Jeremiah was told that things would make sense in the end. In the end. That's your blank. Up here on the screen, Jeremiah 23.20. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, ye shall consider it perfectly. When you get closer to that end, these things are not going to make sense yet. But when you get to that latter end of it, you're going to understand it perfectly. That's what he told Jeremiah. He told Daniel similar things, right? Daniel was told that the end times prophecy would not be understood until the time was near that the, and that the words were closed up and sealed till the time of the end. We, how many times did we go over that verse already just in this series? Yet John was told not to seal the words because the time is at hand. Just like that, this doctrine did not make sense to anyone. And it couldn't make sense. Think about it. When did Israel become a nation again? I think it's 48, but yeah. The 1940s. So people in, let's say, 130 A.D., there was no way they could understand it. That, that wasn't even close to being a reality yet. Now, on the other hand, we begin to see these things. We begin to put these things together because we're at the latter end of these things. And now we can look at them and consider them perfectly because we see what God said and then what God did all throughout history leading up to where we stand today at the very end of 2018. So we don't have to be freaked out that it wasn't understood until way later into the church age. There was no chance of it happening then. God didn't begin revealing it to people. It was there. They just couldn't see it. It didn't make sense. Now it does. So moving on from, from the historical side of the fact that there's always been people talking about this since the very beginning of the church. I mean, even Papias back there, he was born in 60 A.D. Wherever that page went. Whatever. You saw it. Papias. He was born in 60 A.D. I mean, these writings were around from very shortly after the time of Christ forward. So next, types and patterns that we find in the Bible. Types and patterns. First, we're going to hit types. We have Lot up on the screen here talking about Lot. It says that God delivered just Lot. He was a just man, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, 
For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So Lot. At the time that Lot and Abraham lived together on the planet, who was the Jew? You would think that. But no. There were no Jews on the planet at the time of Abraham and Lot. Abraham was the first, but not yet. Not yet. Not till after the circumcision and the covenant and him having a child. This is before he had any children. Before Abraham had any children. So what we have is Lot, a Gentile. A Gentile compromiser of the faith. Sounds a lot like Laodicea, doesn't it? Compromising the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Just like the church today. That was Lot, a Gentile, a compromiser. And he let the world in and he vexed his soul. Sounds a lot like the day in which we live, doesn't it? He became a part of the world. But then, God calls him out before. Before is your blank. God calls him out before his wrath is poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't have Lot go through that tribulation and then pull him out, does he? No, he calls him out, then he sends fire down to destroy the city. God calls him out before his wrath is poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. And somehow, when we read Lot's life and we see how terrible and disgusting it was, his eternal testimony is that he was just and righteous. Just like Laodicea. With our filthy conversation and being wrapped up in the world and being compromisers of the faith, we are still seen by God as just and righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is a huge type and picture of a believer that is raptured out before God's wrath is poured. Next, we have the Shulamite. We're not going to go to Song of Solomon. You have the verses there, Song of Solomon 2, 8 through 13. But you have the Shulamite, which is the bride of Solomon, who is a Gentile bride. She's a Gentile. And she hears the voice of the king calling her up after winter, which would be a picture of Israel's dormancy when they had been dormant for years. And we looked at this in the prophecy of the fig tree probably four weeks ago. But they had been dormant. They were in captivity. But then she hears the voice of the king calling her up after winter and springtime. Israel's dormancy and then slow rebirth and regrowth. Then this bride is called up. He says, come up hither. Come away, my love. Arise, my love. So we have the fig tree there in, in Song of Solomon 2, which is Israel putting forth her green figs, which is rebirth and fruit bearing. And then she hears, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. She is another picture and a type of a Gentile that is called up to meet the king. Next, we have Enoch. Enoch, one of my favorites. Up on the screen here, Hebrews 11. <clears throat> it says, By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He didn't die. And was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And then in Jude, verses 14 and 15, it says, And Enoch also... The which one? Seventh from Adam prophesied of these, 
saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This was Enoch's message all the way back in the book of Genesis. That's what he was preaching. And this guy, again, there are no Jews on the planet yet. He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile that's called out in Genesis 5. And then what comes in Genesis 6? The flood. A worldwide tribulation. A man that walked with God and pleased God was called out, a Gentile, before there were any Jews. There was no Levitical law. There was no Bible. Yet this man walked with God and then he was called out before the tribulation came. So, he was a Gentile that walked with God. He preached the message of Christ returning with his saints. He was the seventh generation from Adam. Coincidental that there are seven church periods? And he was the seventh from Adam that was then called out before tribulation came? I'm sure it's coincidental. Also, he was removed from the earth without dying before the flood, before tribulation came. Enoch, another beautiful picture of the rapture of the church. Go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 1. Esther 1. If I could find it, that would be great. Okay, Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 19. On the what day? Okay, good. The seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, because he was having this big feast. On the seventh day, when the king's heart, when the, the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded that guy and Biztha and Harbona, uh, Bigtha and Abagtha and Zethar and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Azuharis the king, to bring Vashti, the queen. The queen here in Persia to bring the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that, that knew law and judgment. And then next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirez, Marcina, and Memucam, the seven princes of Persia, and Media, which, which saw the prince's face, and which sat, uh, which sat the first in the kingdom. And what shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king, Asuharis, by the chamberlains? And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the, of the king, Asuharis. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all the women, that they shall despise her husbands in their eyes. And when it shall be reported... the 
the king Esuharis commanded Vashti the queen to be brought before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say, say this day unto the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king Asuherus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And Esther was what? Jewish. Jewish. Esther was Jewish. Vashti was a Gentile. Okay, so here, Vashti. This is probably, here's what blows my mind. When I actually did this study, nobody talks about Vashti being a type of the church. Yet, I can't find a more clear example of the church than her. It's mind-blowing. Vashti, she's a Gentile bride. A Gentile bride. Who else is a Gentile bride? The church. The church is a Gentile bride. She's called to a feast. Marriage supper? We're called to a feast. She's a disobedient bride that is called on the seventh day. Again, seven periods of church history. This is not coincidental. She's called on the seventh day and she's a disobedient bride. Due to her disobedience, she is removed and a Jewish bride takes her place. But not only that, it doesn't stop there. After that, tribulation comes to the Jews because Haman wants them all destroyed. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like exactly what's going to take place? She is the most picture-perfect type of the church that we find in the Bible. A disobedient bride wouldn't go on the seventh day, so she had to be taken out so that a Jewish bride could come in and take her place. That is exactly what's going to happen. It's the exact type that God lays out in the book of Esther. In all of these people, in all of their lives, God has been laying out this type, this pattern that flows through their life of what He's going to do. So again, a mystery in the Old Testament, every example we have of a type of the rapture is found in the Old Testament. But it was a mystery. So next, patterns. Patterns. You know what, before we even go to it, go ahead and turn to Revelation 4 so we can be there when we get there. Revelation 4. Because the pattern that we have, two patterns here. One is your, just your Old Testament book order. Look at the way God put these books in our Bible. You have 2 Chronicles. What happens in 2 Chronicles? Jerusalem is destroyed and the Jews are scattered. And at the end of the book, the scattered nation of Israel is told to go home. Guess what? That happened again. It was destroyed in 70 AD and in 1948 they were told to go home. Rebuild. Just like in 2 Chronicles. Then you have Ezra and Nehemiah. They go home and they rebuild. That is what has already happened and still kind of happening today. They're rebuilding. The next thing you have is the book of Esther, that Gentile bride that's removed and a Jewish bride ushered in. Haman, a picture of the Antichrist, tries to obliterate the Jews. Tribulation. Then you have Job. 
Job is persecuted for 42 chapters until God steps in to restore him. Well, the Jews will be persecuted for 42 months during the tribulation period. Then what you have is the Psalms, the exaltation of God, that picture of the second coming of Christ where God is exalted and praised. And then you have Proverbs, the wisdom of God. And how this will actually work out is we have Christ's wisdom reigning throughout the millennium and then into eternity. Just the book order itself screams of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And then next, Revelation chapters 2 through chapter 5 verse 10. We're not going to read all that. We've already been through Revelation 2 and 3. So Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven churches Seven churches mentioned, representing seven periods of church history. Now let's jump in to Revelation 4, verse 1. We already read this, but we're going to hit it again. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things which must be, must be hereafter. Revelation 4, 1. John is called up with a trumpet and is shown what will take place after his rapture. After his rapture, verses 2 and 3, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that, was sat, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. So verses 2 and 3, John is taken to heaven, and previously deceased believers are already there. And there he beholds a throne. Verses 4 through 11. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne... There was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And then those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. What we have here, believers are around the throne with crowns, that judgment seat of Christ, and they cast them at his feet. Now we need to see Revelation 5, 1 through 7. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So there's a book with seven seals that only Jesus can open. So now Jesus is on the scene here. And we'll wrap this up in verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made, un- made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. So, the believers in heaven, they sing a song to the Lamb, and that song says, Thou hast redeemed us by thy blood. These are people that are already saved. And you see in verse 9, where are these people from? It says, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This isn't just Israel, guys. This is everybody. Everybody that was saved is there at this scene at this time. And he says, thou hast redeemed us. Well, the church was redeemed. It's past tense. It's done. The church has been redeemed. Next, it says he hast made us kings and priests. It's done. But notice it says we shall reign. We shall reign in a future time after the tribulation of those days. Who reigns with Christ during the millennium? Who reigns with him? The church. This is the church singing this song. How can they be singing this song in heaven if they're down here going through the tribulation? They can't. It's another pattern. It's another way God has laid it out in the Bible for us to clearly see if we will see through His Spirit and not through what men tell us the Bible says. We shall reign. This is the church. In 2 Timothy it says, if you suffer with Him, you'll reign with Him. This is for the church. This is the church singing. And again, this is a day that we definitely look forward to. I know I do. I really do. A day where we don't have to deal with the garbage of this earth. A day I don't have to deal with the garbage of my own flesh. But we can never forget that it means the church failed. It means that the church stopped being salt and the church stopped being light to the world around it. And that's why he had to finally just call us out because it was time. The church had gone too far overboard. But that doesn't mean that every single believer in the Laodicean church period is a failure. You don't have to be. Just because the church as a whole is crumbling and falling apart and Jesus has to call it out doesn't mean you did. That's why we have to press on. That's why when we know these things, we can't just get fat heads with knowledge. We have to do something with it we got to go out. we got to talk to people. 
not arrogantly, but confidently, because we know and believe what the Bible says. That's why we do this. That's why it's important that you're learning the Bible and why we don't just sit here and have a party every week or sing songs in a circle every week. We can do that. But our focus had better be, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Because that's what matters. And then doing something about it. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I do thank You that You've woven this doctrine throughout Your Bible. And just like You told Daniel, You said the wise will understand. You said the wicked, they'll do wickedly and they won't, they won't understand. They won't know. But we, the wise, through the blood of Christ, we can understand and we can know. So thank You for revealing these things unto the simple. Because I'm nothing. I'm not super spiritual and I'm not super smart and You know that because You made me. But I just have a heart that says, Lord, I don't know what to do and You do. And I just want to know what You have for me. And I want to do it. So help embolden me to do that. Give me the strength, the power, the desire to do that. And the same for everyone in this room tonight. Father, thank You for our fellowship and our time together. Bless our, our drives home tonight and our rest. And that we would wake up just charged and ready to just take on the world for You. And that we would change it one person at a time, one soul at a time. In Jesus' name, Amen.